0: For, for you at La Marada, two weeks ago, there was a reading service at Fullerton. We just had ours last week. Jeffrey Hubbard did a great job reading it. Uh, these reading services are helpful, one reason, because they give us the big picture and they help us see what Mark is doing. He's very intentional with what stories he includes and how he puts them together. And, and these reading services always help me observe things about the text that I'll miss when I'm just in one little scene. And one of the things, I don't know if you noticed it, two weeks ago. Um, But one of the big shifts in this section of Mark is in the first eight chapters, it was all about, um, with Jesus, his focus was on crowds, the crowds, the crowds, the crowds. As soon as his ministry begins, he goes from town to town to town. He enters the synagogue. he's, He's opening the scriptures and preaching to crowds. He's outside, he's preaching to huge crowds, he's feeding crowds, he's healing crowds, and the disciples are along kind of as, you know, uh, as apprentices and learning, and, and, but then we get to Mark 8 at the end and there's this pivotal moment where he asks, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. And he says, yes, and the son of man must suffer. And here's the pivot. Right now, Jesus is heading to the cross. The whole rest of the gospel, we're going to see, even though there will still be some scenes with crowds, he is headed to the cross. And now the focus primarily of his teaching and his instruction is disciples, disciples, disciples. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a handful of scenes that will still hit where he's healing someone or he has an interaction with a crowd, but Mark makes it really clear. They're always, he's on the way to Jerusalem and he gets stopped or interrupted with a question or presented with an opportunity and he'll take it. But then usually, even then, Mark follows it with an aside of Jesus pulls his disciples back to the side or in private to a house and he, he teaches something about that moment or he explains something more clearly to them. At this stage, Jesus is preparing disciples, and the reason is they need to be prepared for two things. Number one, he's going to suffer and die and rise again. So he's already said it twice. He said it right after Peter's confession. He said it right after the transfiguration. He's going to say it again next week in the passage following ours today. And then two more times. So he's preparing them that he's going to suffer and die and rise again. But he's also preparing him, them that he's going to go he hasn't said it yet in Mark explicitly, but we know Jesus is going to bodily ascend and leave them physically, and he's going to turn the keys over to the kingdom to these 12 fishermen, tax collectors, uneducated men. He is going to build his church on them. Isn't that, we should never get over how crazy that is, right? Right? Jesus, these are the knuckleheads that are slow to learn and Jesus keeps saying, oh, how long? Why don't you understand? Don't you get it? And he is about to hand this and trust this great commission over to them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It makes sense as, he has, as he's heading to the cross, he is focusing and he is preparing them for ministering in his name when he's gone. How on earth is that gonna be successful? And here we are downstream 2,000 years in La Mirada and Fullerton and we're part of this huge global mission and kingdom that is spreading around the world that started here, but still the same thing. We're part of the same great commission. We have the same enemy. Satan didn't just throw his hands up after the resurrection and go, well, I guess I'm done. No, he fiercely opposes this mission. How on earth is this gonna succeed if Jesus is gone? And the answer has been, and in this scene again, the answer is going to be in humble dependence on Jesus and his power. Remember the two miracles of feeding the crowds? That was the point that Jesus was teaching the disciples, right? There's not enough food for thousands and he says, feed them. Impossible. Jesus knows it's impossible unless he makes this possible. He's teaching them, I am calling you to do something impossible but If you are dependent on me, this is not impossible. I am gonna do the impossible through you as you are dependent upon me. And they are slow to learn this, right? Well, in this scene here in Mark 9, they're gonna learn it one more time the hard way by failing. And they fail while Jesus is gone. That's the backstory, right? Last week you had the transfiguration. Where is Jesus? He's up on a mountain with Peter and James and John. And he's given them this this glimpse of his glory and his his divine glory. And then as they're coming back down the mountain, they they come upon problems happen. While Jesus was gone, the other nine disciples have gotten themselves in trouble and there's a big argument going on, a big crowd. And that's where our, our story picks up. Let's pick up verse 14, chapter nine. And when they... Jesus, Peter, James, John, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So there's a fight going on. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and they greeted him and he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid so i asked your disciples to cast it out and they couldn't i think there's a little bit of blame in that your right i asked your disciples jesus to cast this thing out they couldn't do it so he answers them oh faithless generation How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, that's Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him just pause right there. I'm not going to make a whole point of it here, but again, let's just not miss Satan hates people. People are made in God's image. Jesus is here to rescue and redeem and restore his image in those people and Satan hates us. And just this scene is gripping. It, A little boy. Can you imagine if if one of us just, you know, went and just picked one of the little boys and kids in the crowd just grabbed one of you, just started beating you and throwing you to the ground or trying to push you into fire or drown you or choke out your, your I mean, this is horrific. This is Satan just treating this child, just trying to destroy him. This poor man has watched his son endure this for who knows how long. Satan hates us. And this man's brought his son to Jesus and and the disciples have failed to to be able to help him. So I think with some discouragement, he, he turns to Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think he said it loud because it says when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute deaf spirit, I command you come out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out, convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Three points I want to hit. And, and they all connect, I think, like, like a thread. Hopefully by the end we'll, we'll see this sort of chain. These are all related. But number one, prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. Prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. Number two, prayerlessness... prayerlessness is a cause of unfruitfulness. It's not the only cause, but prayerlessness is a cause of unfruitfulness in God's people, in his church. And third, our unfruitfulness reflects on Jesus. Let's take those one at a time. Prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness, Prayerlessness reveals something. So Jesus is concerned that they didn't pray in this situation, but the concern is more about what their prayerlessness is evidence of. And I think it's evidence of a faithless approach to ministry and a faithless approach that we can have to life. Prayerlessness is an indicator of a a sense of self-sufficiency, a self-reliance, an independence from God and his power that I don't really need him, I've got this. Prayerlessness points to that. Prayerlessness exposes misplaced faith. In other words, when I approach something prayerlessly, in place of prayer, whatever I do, that's what I place my faith in, right? So if in place of praying, I just get busy and get to work, well, then my faith is in my work, right? So prayerlessness is an indicator of an approach that's faithless. It's not not of faith. I see this in the text because Jesus answered to them, why could we not cast this out? He says, well, this kind, kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now notice in Matthew Matthew has the same story, has the same account, tells that Jesus pulled the disciples aside. They asked the same question. Why couldn't we cast it out? And and Matthew includes another thing that Jesus said, says, well, because of your little faith. I think think Jesus probably said both of these things. I I think they're both, he's saying one thing. He's saying um, I think that your prayerlessness is an indicator of your faith. It was little. Well, how little was it? He says, well, Truly, I say to you, if you had faith, have faith like a grain of mustard seed. You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So, how much faith did the disciples have? That they, how much faith were the disciples acting with in this scene? Less than mustard seed, right? That's what he says. Your little faith. How little? Well, if you had faith this big, you could say that mountain be be removed, and it would have. Have nothing would be impossible, but that a demon didn't cast out. So essentially, he's saying you didn't approach this with any faith. I don't think that the point when Jesus says this kind cannot be driven out by anything, but prayer is a quick lesson on uh, demon uh, identification and exorcism diagnosis. In other words, okay, let, let, me, let me explain. So some of these, you got those ones over here, but these demons over here, you got, you got to pray those out. So, you know, th- this, is, you know this is how is how No, no, no. The main point I think here is he's saying uh, their approach to this s- scenario with this father and this son lacked prayer. Prayer wasn't even factoring into what they were doing. It doesn't say what they did. But they didn't pray. I think they mistakenly thought that the power to cast out this demon was something that they just inherently had. So they didn't bother praying. We'll get back to that in a minute, in the second point. But just here, I want us to think about that prayerlessness is evidence of a faithless approach to life. The other place I see it in here is is his, when Jesus is frustrated, he says, oh, faithless generation. I think he's talking about the disciples here. Faithless generation. Prayerlessness revealed it. The same is true of prayerlessness for us, isn't it? Am I the only one here that can can struggle with prayerlessness? Man, as soon as I realized this passage this week was was getting after prayerlessness, ouch. Convicting. Prayerlessness shows an, an approach to life that I think I don't need God. I act as if I don't need help. Pastor Daniel Henderson, I read this line this week. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. That's true, isn't it? It's it's, it's a declaration of, it's saying something. Prayerlessness says something. It communicates a sense of sufficiency, self-sufficiency, Another pastor that I love, Kevin DeYoung, about a month ago, I saw this tweet and it, and it just nailed me. I wrote it down and, and this week it came to mind. He, one morning he, he posted, to start the day without prayer is to suggest the devil is feeble, God is irrelevant, and we can handle things on our own. That's what hitting my day without prayer is essentially communicating. enemy is not a big deal. God is irrelevant to the things that I'm about to do and, and face, and, and I, I got this. How often do I approach just my day-to-day life and ministry like this? Being a Christ-like husband, I got this. Patient, wise, dad, got this. Work, got this. On Monday, I was studying this passage, beginning to make this outline, realizing this point that Jesus is saying prayerlessness shows faithlessness. And I thought, I've even prayed as I opened the word to start doing what I'm doing right now. That's true. I stopped and just closed this and I started and said, Lord, help me, right? And what's even sadder to me is that sometimes even when life shows me that I can't do this on my own, I'm still slow to pray. Anyone else? Right? Sometimes finally, where our helplessness drives us to say, help, God, I can't do this. But I have an amazingly high threshold to get to that point. Do you? The disciples here, it, it occurred to me, the fact that they never prayed, that the, the, the demon was never cast out tells us not only did they not start by praying, but they never got to praying, right? So I don't know if it was five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour they were trying to help this poor boy, but at no time did they finally pray, right? Prayer didn't factor into it. And I just thought how how, how true, even when when we're faced with our Uh, insufficiency, we can still be stubbornly slow to turn and pray and say, God, help. It's faithlessness. So how do we respond? If if you are prayerless, then, then this rebuke is for you and me as well, not just the 12. If prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness and you say, yeah, I am often prayerless, then the rebuke is for us. And how do we respond? Well, the response should be, more faith, right? If Jesus is calling us out for puny little, you know, less than mustard seed size faith, then our response should be more faith. But see, there's a paradox to little faith and big faith or weak faith and strong faith. Big faith isn't, all right, I just got to faith harder, right? I, it's like I got to flex my faith muscle and I just got to, that's not how big faith works, is it? No. The paradox is that big faith is usually a real clear awareness of insufficiency and weakness, right? And the sufficiency and power, ability and willingness, gracious willingness in God to answer, right? So when we call someone a prayer warrior, that person is a prayer warrior. It sounds really super Christian and strong, right? But think of people in your life that you would call a prayer warrior type. My guess is that's a humble person, is it? Not someone that is just really good at believing. They're just good at believing, right? No. They believe because their awareness of their need and the greatness and power and grace of God is big, right? In other words, gospel people. What will keep kill that? deep self-sufficient instinct in my heart and drive me to my knees in prayer is the gospel, right? Because where is it more clear that I am utterly helpless apart from God? The reason Jesus is pressing toward Jerusalem, the reason he stepped aside from his glory and took on flesh and suffered and died was because he needed to rescue us because we were helpless, utterly helpless. If he didn't do anything, if I get that and I keep getting that, I will be a more prayerful person. You'll be a more prayerful person. Needy people have big faith. So what we do every week as we rehearse the gospel and retell it and retell it through songs and scripture is helping hopefully grow faith. And the father in this scene, I think, helps us get here. This father's very feeble but sincere prayer to Jesus is really a model for us and the disciples about the sort of faith that Jesus responds to and answers, right? He, the, the, the man e- expresses the kind of faith in Jesus that the disciples didn't act in, right? At first, he acknowledges, I, I believe, help my unbelief, but, but it's this sincere cry, help me. Help me believe. I wa- let me back up. I want to say one thing about this line here that is often abused. Um, verse 23, when Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand that. You can't paraphrase that. If you believe, you can do it, right? That's Joel Osteen. That's Oprah. It's not true. Jesus isn't saying, if you just believe, you can do it. He's also not saying all things are guaranteed for the one who believes, right? You believe that's true? The clearest reason I know that that's not what Jesus means is that near the end of the Gospel of Mark, there's only two other times that Jesus uh, is talking, saying all things are possible. And one of those is as he's praying on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, the night he's about to be arrested and suffer and die. And you know how he starts his prayer? Abba Father, all things are possible for you. I think it says, Abba, Father, I know all things are possible for you. If anyone believes all things are possible with God, it's Jesus. And then he says, remove this cup from me. He believes all things are possible with the one he's praying to, but it's not the will of the Father, and he yields to it. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So he's not saying to this man, if you just believe enough, you are guaranteed the thing for which you pray necessarily. He does get the thing for which he prays. Jesus does answer, but it's not because it's guaranteed. We don't put God in this place of obligation simply because, ah, well, they believed enough, so guess I have to do it, right? All right, sidebar. So here's this man, and he's a model for us in his humble, sincere prayer. It's mixed with doubt. I believe, Jesus, that's, that's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here with my son if I didn't believe to some extent, but help my unbelief. I mean, your disciples couldn't do anything. I'm not sure you can either. And that's where we need to start. I don't think our prayerlessness is, be, is, is because we don't believe at all, but it's because lots of things in our life erode faith and, and, and introduce doubts in our mind, either of the willingness of God or the ability of God that make us Pause. And, and not pray. And so we should be encouraged. We can pray like this. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus actually invites a prayer like that and responds to it. Question, how did Jesus answer the man's prayer? The man prayed, Jesus, help my unbelief. Jesus answered it. How did he do it? He didn't like, beam faith into this man's heart so his faith meter increased and he suddenly, I do have faith, you know. No, he healed the boy. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. And he cast the demon out and he gives this man his son back. Do you think that that man left with more unbelief or less? Right? His belief in Jesus' power and compassion and grace went up. Jesus answered his prayer, help my unbelief. He did. And Jesus helps our unbelief the same way. That's why I think praying apart from God's word with faith is really hard. If we just try to go out and pray in a vacuum, this prayer, God, I don't believe as much as I should. Help my unbelief. And then just sit there waiting until I feel more belief rising inside of me in a vacuum. That doesn't happen like that. It happens when... When my, my awareness of God's power and my need grows, right? That's how faith, so we look to God's word. We see his character here through his, his word and through the, his history and the way he's dealt with Israel and uniquely in Jesus. And we see his faithfulness. We see his trustworthiness. And then he helps our unbelief. He helps us to, to be more prayerful. All right, that's number one. We we gotta keep moving. Number two, prayerlessness is also a cause of unfruitfulness in this scene. Prayerlessness can result in powerless ministry and effort or spiritually impotent ministry and effort. I wanna qualify that. It doesn't always. There are some times that we pray earnestly with faith wanting to see God move, wanting to God, see God act, wanting to see God use us and we pray and pray and pray and we watch and wait and watch and wait and we wait for some fruit. So unfruitfulness doesn't always mean prayerlessness but I do think probably more often than not much of our unfruitfulness as Christians and as the church, the blame lies at the feet of prayerlessness. Th- that you know, we, we have not because we ask not principle. I think that's true. Listen to this. This is a little bit longer quote, but I read this this week. R.A. Tory. he was the first dean of Biola. He was the first pastor of Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles and Tory Institute at Biola is named after him. Uh, he wrote this. Fr- is Fred here? He could tell me probably when he wrote this, but he wrote this. This is this a while back, but it's very, very relevant to us now. He says, how little time the average Christian spends in prayer We are too busy to pray, and so we're too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, few conversions, much machinery, but few results. The power of God is lacking in our lives and in our work. We have not because we ask not. Many professed Christians confessedly do not believe in the power of prayer. It's quite the fashion with some to contemptuously contrast the prayers, those people who pray, with the doers, forgetting that in the history of the church, the real doers have been prayers. That the men, and I'll say women too, who have made the glorious part of the church's history have been without exception men and women of prayer Of those who do believe theoretically in the power of prayer, not one in a thousand realizes its power. Ouch. How much time does the average Christian spend daily in prayer, he asks. How much time do you spend daily in prayer? It was a master stroke of the devil when he got the church and the ministry so generally to lay aside the mighty weapon of prayer. The devil's perfectly willing that the church should multiply its organizations and its deftly contrived machinery for the conquest of the world for Christ if it will only give up praying. He laughs softly as he looks at the church of today and says under his breath, you can have your Sunday schools, your YMCA's, your YWCA's, your YPSCEs and your BYPUs and your Epworth Leagues, whatever these are, and your WCTUs and your boys' brigades. Oh, I know that one. I was in that for a year. And your institutional churches and your men's clubs and your grand choirs and your fine organs and your brilliant preachers and your revival efforts even. If you don't bring them into the power of almighty God sought and obtained by earnest, persistent, believing, mighty prayer, the devil is not afraid of machinery. He's only afraid of God. And machinery without prayer is machinery without God. Our day is characterized by the multiplication of man's machinery and the diminution of God's power sought and obtained by prayer. Wow. It sounds like the church was in a hard spot back then. Not us, right? Right? I just thought, well, let's substitute I know what the YMCA is because of the song, but I don't know what a lot of those other acronyms are. But all these different ministries and missions and outreaches, but let's just substitute in for Grace uh, LaMirada, Grace Fullerton. The devil laughs and says, you can have your adventure weeks. You can have your food banks and Project Hopes. And Band of Brothers, you can have your women's retreats. You can have Youth Group 412 on Wednesday nights. You can have missions to Mexico. You can fund California Schools Project. You can have your LA Bible Theological, you know, uh, training centers, and you can have all that. That's okay as long as you don't pray. I was encouraged after after the second service was talking to Martha, who serves so faithfully at our food bank and was reminded, thankfully, so many of those ministries at Grace are being done prayerfully, right? So that's not a slight. I think Food Bank leads the way in some ways for us of approaching this with an utter dependence on on God to provide and help, which is awesome. But prayerfulness is a cause of unfruitfulness. Um, you know, in the text, I see this because here's this thing that, that Jesus had commissioned them to do in Mark 6. He had taken the 12, paired them up, sent them out. He said, I give you authority over evil spirits, and he sent them out. And so here they are with seemingly no authority over this evil spirit. They didn't pray. And I think it teaches us something about how spiritual gifting works, right? Spiritual gifting doesn't make prayer unnecessary. Spiritual gifting doesn't make us independently abled apart from God. Prayer isn't for just picking up the slack where my spiritual gifts stop. Stop or my talents and my skill set stops. Prayer is how these gifts are, are worked out. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. I think this makes sense of the way Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He says, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what are spiritual gifts? They're not just X-Men powers that God beams into you when you become a Christian and then you can just exercise it at will whenever you want and it's always successful. No, they're, they're ministries, they're activities, they're ways that we serve others in the body or serve the world that God empowers and makes fruitful, right? So the gift of evangelism isn't just the, the, the skill of eloquence or the mind for apologetic, uh, b- apologetics and persuasive um, articulation of speech, which I am not demonstrating right now in the way I say that. It's not just that ability in and of itself. Oh, that guy's got the gift of evangelism. No, the gift of evangelism is when God blesses evangelistic effort and makes it bear fruit. Whether that person has skill set, that's within their skill set, or whether they stutter, right? The gift of wisdom isn't just smarts and cleverness um, given. The world has that, sometimes. (laughs) It's approaching uh, like a complicated ethical issue or a moral decision and thinking biblically and and theologically um, where it's gray. It's not just spelled out chapter and verse and prayerfully seeking God's insight as to uh, the, the wise decision and God blessing that and giving guidance and insight or the gift of preaching and teaching isn't just um, being really articulate and a good person at organizing your thoughts God uses that but it's the spirit bringing fruit when the word is preached and taught that's why I love, Mark Dever is a pastor in, in uh, D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I follow him on Twitter. I would say that dude is an educated and skillful speaker and teacher. But almost every Saturday on Twitter, I'll see something like this. Preaching on blank tomorrow at CHBC, pray for fruit. It's an awareness that, you know, Yeah, okay, I'm Mark Dever and I'm a pretty smart dude, but apart from God blessing and, 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 and causing fruit, I can do nothing. Even this week, early in the week, I saw he had tweeted, working on Luke 14 for Sunday. Any thoughts, questions, insights? Pray for wisdom. Even in the preparation of it, he's recognizing God needs to empower this gift that he has apparently given me. Otherwise, past experience isn't going to carry me through, right? Apart from him, we can do nothing one last little application with that I want to suggest maybe some of you might have struggled with this for a long time I don't know what my spiritual gift is other people talk about it like they know it right god just like sent them a postcard in the mail one day this is your spiritual gift and they just know it and others are like I have no idea and you've taken Scantron tests and things to try to assess your strengths and your weaknesses, and they've said, well, no, your gift is helps. Or I I, mean, I don't know what, sorry, I'm not I'm trying to mock that, but maybe that's not the approach that's best, is to say, what are my strengths and weaknesses? And then, okay, well, probably the top strength I have, that's my spiritual gift. That probably would have been your top strength if you didn't trust Jesus. maybe, a better approach is open your bulletin and look at some of those summer serving opportunities that are right here within our body and look at them and say, you know, I don't know if I necessarily would see myself doing that, but I'm willing and prayerfully serve in that way and see what happens. You might be surprised. We've had core group leaders over the years in our youth ministry that have been surprised. I remember asking, uh, i pick on her, Julie Nygaman, years ago, I came up to her one day, just totally, you know, she had no idea it was coming. I said, would you, be, have you ever consider being a core group leader with high schoolers? And she would look at me like, what? And we talked about it some, and I explained some of the reasons why I thought maybe she, she would make a good... Uh, leader and she sort of with fear and trepidation did so prayerfully and was a wonderful core group leader. It wasn't necessarily because she said oh I'm, this is what I am made to do but the Lord blessed it and I think that's the way spiritual gifts work and before we're done I want to give a couple minutes for us to stop and pray. Maybe you need to pray one of these three ways. One, Lord is there unfruitfulness in my life that's because of my own prayerlessness? Help me see that. Or number two, Lord, how might this apply to grace? Are there ways that we as a church are unfruitful because we are not prayerful? It's a great reason to come to House of Prayer again on Wednesday night. That's why we pray together. Or third, you might pray, Lord, are there ways you want me to serve and minister that I feel are outside my strengths and abilities that you would like to bless and empower? Ask God to help you step into those faith, with faith and, and prayer and, and see what happens. But before we pray, let me me just make this one last little point because I think it connects the dots all the way through is that unfaithfulness can reflect on Jesus. Or, I'm sorry, unfruitfulness. It's connected, right? A faithless approach to life leads to a prayerless approach to life. And a prayerless approach to life often results in little fruit, little spiritual fruit. And little spiritual fruit in Christians and in churches reflects on Jesus Notice the scribes here in this scene, there's an argument going on. It doesn't say exactly what it's about, but it seems that the disciples' failure was was bolstering the scribes' claim about Jesus' identity. And maybe the argument that's going on really is, you know, some are saying, no, Jesus is. And the scribes are saying, but come on. I mean, his disciples couldn't even cast out. And somehow the scribes' position uh, is being bolstered by their spiritual impotence here. And I think it has an effect on the father because the father had faith coming in the first place. His son had been afflicted since childhood and yet he's still here He's brought his son because he has some measure of faith that this guy Jesus is different and can heal my son. But by the time he actually is eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, he's not so sure, right? After this whole thing with the disciples, he's saying, well, if you can, you know, I don't know. I mean, they weren't able to, I assume that, Maybe you're not able to, right? Their unfruitfulness uh, actually affected this guy's faith. The, the church, our powerlessness, can actually lie about the power of the gospel. Maybe me think of John 15:8. Jesus said, "By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit." God wants us to bear fruit, not just so that f- for, our, for, our, for glory for ourselves, no, so that he's glorified. When his people trust him in a reliant abide in me, apart from me you can do nothing sort of way and pray for God to work and God does work and there's fruit, God is glorified by this. So thankfully the reverse is true. Our, f- our, our, our prayerfulness and fruitfulness can also reflect on God and the gospel. Encouragement as we close uh, and sing, I think, a great hymn uh, to follow this up. We're going to sing this line, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. That's the point. But before we do, I want to encourage you as and me as we close. I was reminded this week that the disciples do learn this lesson about dependency and prayer. When we see the disciples and the early church in the book of acts if there is one thing that they've gotten it is this ship is going to sink unless we pray right Do you know this mor- today is pentecost sunday this is the sunday uh, in the year that many churches you know uh, remember that 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 the day of Pentecost when the disciples were gathered waiting and waiting. Jesus says, you're going to receive power, so wait until you've received it. And they're praying and praying, and then God sends his spirit and empowers his church And there's that Sunday where 3,000 or more are added in one day. And then what do they keep doing? They pray. When Peter and John are are hauled into court and and beaten and sent back out, what is the church doing? They're praying. And when the church is established here, what are they doing? They're praying and fasting. What next, Lord? And they're sending out missionaries. And they, they get it. We need to be dependent on church. And so I'm encouraged to say, if they got it, we can too. By God's help, we as a church will just grow in a faithful approach to life that leads to a prayerful approach to life which bears fruit and glorifies God through our church. Amen? Let me pray for that for us. Uh, Lord, we believe and we ask you to help our unbelief in specific little individual circumstances, personal to each one of us, but also together as a church as we keep moving into the future and, and we have decisions to be made and uh, and, and great needs and, and, and longings to see you, you work in, in new ways and powerful ways. God, help our unbelief. Make us a prayerful people. And then I pray that you would, you would increase our faith by answering our prayer, encouraging us to pray all the more. Lord, help us to follow in the footsteps of these disciples who learned it slowly, but they did learn it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.